Let us turn now to Second Chronicles chapter 14, and we'll read this chapter, which is also our text for this morning. So Abijah rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. Then Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In his days, the land was quiet for ten years. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. For he removed the altars of the foreign gods and the high places, and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah, and the kingdom was quiet under him. And he built fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest. He had no war in those years, because the Lord had given him rest. Therefore he said to Judah, Let us build these cities and make walls around them, and towers, gates, and bars, while the land is yet before us. Because we have sought the Lord our God, we have sought him, and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. And Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah who carried shields and spears, and from Benjamin 280,000 men who carried shields and drew bows. All these were mighty men of valor. Then Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Marashah. So Asa went out against him, and they set the troops in battle array in the valley of Zephathah at Marashah. And Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you, and in your name we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. So the Lord struck the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And Asa and the people who were with him pursued them to Gerar. So the Ethiopians were overthrown, and they could not recover, for they were broken before the Lord and his army, and they carried away very much spoil. Then they defeated all the cities around Gerar, for the fear of the Lord came upon them. And they plundered all the cities, for there was exceedingly much spoil in them. They also attacked the livestock enclosures and carried off sheep and camels in abundance and returned to Jerusalem. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Over the past years, periodically, I have uh, preached a short series of sermons on the kings of, of Judah. Uh, we considered uh, the, the reign, the life of Hezekiah and of uh, Josiah in more recent years. And it's of great importance to know this history. And uh, you don't learn it by just hearing it once. We are constantly bombarded. Our children are constantly uh, bombarded by, by information overload. And much of that information is, is uh, useless, if not positively harmful. And it's of great importance that uh, the teaching of Scripture is constantly heard and explained. Uh, there is the value of Christian education. Uh, there is the value of, of uh, Sunday school. There is the value of homeschooling. 
And by homeschooling, I'm not uh, speaking only of the practice of parents teaching their children at home, but I'm talking about the kind of ongoing homeschooling that ought to characterize every Christian family, where fathers, as spiritual leaders in the home, uh, read the scriptures to their children, as mothers teach the word of God at mealtime or on other occasions, and where the Bible is actually read. Not just Bible story books or devotionals, but the actual Bible. And I would urge you uh, not to neglect the historical sections. Read through First, Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and read the book of Chronicles. It's fascinating history. It's important. It lays an, uh, a foundation for, for faith. Paul told uh, Timothy that from a child he knew the the, the scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. God calls us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ also includes the way God has prepared for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we learn in the Old Testament, and how he used kings to foreshadow uh, who he would be and what he would do. We learn how God preserved his people through such kings like David and how God preserved the throne of David among them through his descendants and how they foreshadowed the kind of uh, king that Christ would be. And sometimes they did that also by way of contrast by kings who failed to be Christ-like. In fact, we know that the best of kings were a mixture of both. And that's true of Asa, as we will see. He had his faults. But God's verdict upon Asa was positive, as we read in verse 2. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. In the next chapter, verse 17, we read, Nevertheless, it had acknowledged his fault, but then it says, Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was loyal all his days. The heart of Asa was loyal. You should pay attention to that language, this reference to the heart of Asa. It's important. These descriptions of Asa, they show, they show God's grace. We know that, uh, Judah and, uh, the people of God, sometimes referred to as the visible church on earth at that time, had gone off track, beginning with with Solomon. Uh, Solomon, who married foreign women and who turned his heart away from the Lord, and he he served other other gods. He introduced all kinds of idolatry into uh, Israel. And from there, things only got worse. Uh, his son Rehoboam, we read of him in uh, in chapter... Chapter 12, in verse 1, it says, When Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. Later on, in verse 13 and 14, we're given a summary of his, of his reign. He strengthened himself. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. In verse 14, and he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. Or we move on to consider Asa's father himself. In 1 Kings chapter 15, 
verse 2 and 3, we read the Lord's verdict on Abijam, or Abijah. We read there, he reigned three years, a rather short reign in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maaka, the granddaughter of Abishalom. We'll return to her as we continue our study. And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. And we'll consider more about Abijah later. But you see the trend, you see the pattern here. After only 20 years, 20 years after Solomon and the division of the kingdom into the northern section, the northern tribes, the ten tribes, leaving only Judah and Benjamin in the south, after a rather short time, idolatry is rampant uh, spiritually as well as physically. Judah is weakened. It's in decline. Jerusalem is vulnerable. And then God graced his people with a loyal-hearted king, loyal-hearted Asa. And we're going to consider how God's grace is revealed through Asa. God's grace is displayed through godly leadership. Asa reformed uh, Judah's worship. In verse 3 we read, Then the king stood, or rather, in verse 3 of Second uh, Chronicles 14, he removed the altars of the foreign gods in the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down uh, the wooden images. Asa went on a, a, a mission of, of uh, decimation. He destroyed the altars of these foreign gods. You know that uh, the first four commandments of the ten are the most important. They teach us how we are to love God supremely. And it's also worth noting that the first and the most outstanding feature of godly kings from David uh, to Jehoshaphat to Joash to Hezekiah to Josiah was their concern for the pure worship of God. That's what marked their reign. That's what's highlighted. That's one of the most outstanding features that the word of God calls our attention to again and again with respect to them. They're concerned for the pure worship of God. And we need to remember that we're not talking here about the first task of civil leaders today. We are looking at the kingdom of God. And in that connection, we are looking at the priority of the church of Jesus Christ. We're looking at the first concern of Christ the King. At this time of year, we remember uh, the great Protestant Reformation. And if we think biblically about the Reformation, we understand that it was, first of all, a reformation of worship. It was a return to God and to the pure worship that God had ordained and revealed in Christ according to His Word. The first concern of Christ the King is that we have no other gods besides God that we do not bow down to or worship or honor anyone or anything but him alone, and that we do so in spirit and truth. And this is at the heart of the covenant of grace. This is at the heart of God's relationship with his people. It's at the heart of uh, a life of faith. It's at the heart of of church life. Now, as I say that, I suppose that some could say, well, what about... Uh, what about 
um, practical Christian living? What about missions and evangelism? What about caring for the poor and caring for the sick? Aren't those important? Well, yes, indeed they're important. Of course they're of great importance. But they're not of first importance. And why is that? Well, we might say the reason for that is that the Christian life is not performance-based. The Christian life is not concerned, first of all, with how we are to live and what we are to do. Think of how the Ten Commandments begins. I, I tried to read uh, the introduction a little bit slowly this morning because uh, that introduction is of crucial importance in understanding the context in which the Ten Commandments were given. They were given by the Lord to his people whom he had redeemed out of Egypt. In other words, he was calling them to grateful living in view of his grace and power and mercy on their behalf. The focus of the covenant of grace, what is of first importance, is the focus on God, on his works, what he has done. And in that connection, his worship. See, Asa's loyal heart was a response to the God of grace. That's what fired his concern for true worship. You know that uh, the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ is revealed with two distinct bookends. And they both were about the same uh, activity of the Savior. His public ministry began with cleansing the temple of the buyers and sellers. And it ended with the Lord Jesus purifying the temple. Shows the priority of worship, huh? Because God's house was to be a house of prayer for all nations, and it had been turned into a, a den of thieves. And the Lord Jesus came to purify the sons of Levi, if you will, to gather a people who worship him in response to his grace. Now, isn't that of crucial importance even about the way we think of worship? You know, we can think of worship as something that we do, something that's an obligation upon us, because after all, we're Christians, and so we got to go to church. If people think of worship that way, you might say they don't understand the first thing of the gospel. Because worship is not something that we have to do as if we operate with a performance-based view of the Christian life. No, worship is our response to God's grace. We sang that, didn't we, from uh, Psalm 22. Amid the thronging worshipers, Jehovah, will I bless I'll come into God's house and extol him for his grace and mercy. That's my great privilege and calling as a redeemed sinner. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. You see, true zeal for godly living, uh, true concern for the poor, true concern for the sick, true concern for uh, missions and evangelism, it flows out of that flows out of the knowledge of God, his saving mercy and grace, creating a people to glorify him and to worship him, to come with the sacrifices of thanksgiving, the fruit of their lips, praise to God of first importance. Asa called for a return to God. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers. That that language is also significant because, in a way, it helps us to see a contrast between Asa and Abijah, his own father. Now, some good things are said about Abijah. He did some good things. He spoke some good words. 
And that's often a characteristic of some whom, in God's verdict, were bad kings. Sometimes bad kings did some good things and they spoke some good words. Just like some good things did some bad, good kings did some bad things and spoke some bad words. But in the previous chapter, it presents Abijah in a pretty positive light. Because there, Jerusalem was threatened by the northern kingdoms under the reign of Jeroboam. And he gathered a number of people and strengthened themselves against Rehoboam at the time. But later, he attacked Jerusalem under Abijah. And Abijah confronted him. I'll, I'll, I'll take the time to read that speech of Abijah uh, when uh, Jeroboam came against him. Abijah set the battle in order with an army of valiant warriors, 400,000 choice men. Jeroboam also drew up in battle formation against him with 800,000 choice men, mighty men of valor. You see that's two to one. And Abijah stood on Mount Zemaram, which is in the mountains of Ephraim, and he said, Hear me, Jeroboam, and all Israel. Should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the dominion over Israel to David forever, to him and his sons, by a covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord. Then worthless rogues uh, gathered to him and strengthened themselves against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and inexperienced and could not withstand them. And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord, which is in the hand of the sons of David? And you are a great multitude, and with you are the gold calves which Jeroboam made for you as gods. Have you not cast out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made for yourselves priests like the peoples of other lands, so that whoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams may be a priest of things that are not gods? But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. And the priests who minister to the Lord are the sons of Aaron, and the Levites attend to their duties." And they burned to the Lord every morning and every evening burnt sacrifices and sweet incense. They also set the showbread in order on the pure gold table and the lampstand of gold with its lamp to burn every evening. For we keep the command of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. Now look, God himself is with us as our head and his priest with sounding trumpets to sound the alarm against you, O children of Israel. Do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you shall not prosper. But Jeroboam caused an ambush to go around behind them, so they were in front of Judah, and the ambush was behind them. And when Judah looked around, to their surprise, the battle line was at both front and rear, and they cried out to the Lord, and the priests sounded the trumpets. Then the men of Judah gave a shout, and as the men of Judah shouted, it happened that God struck Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. Now that's a very impressive kind of encounter, isn't it? Abijah gives testimony against Israel for their idolatry and unfaithfulness. And he describes in great detail how they're maintaining the, the worship of God according to the law. And when they face the crisis of being surrounded, the people of Judah cry unto the Lord, and the Lord hears them, and he delivers them. So what's wrong with Abijah? Well, in light of what the inspired word of God says about him in terms of his failure to seek God from the heart, in a way, this speech is a boast of uh, Judah's privilege and their standing. And it's a rather self-righteous declaration of how they think they're doing all the right things. Now, God in his mercy still delivered them. But not because Abijah was a man of faith. 
and true godliness. Because all the while that he bragged about Judah's maintenance of the true worship of God, he was tolerating gross idolatry in the midst of the land. And Asa, with a true heart of loyalty before God, addressed that. And he removed those idols. And he commanded Judah to seek the Lord. Asa reformed Judah's worship. Secondly, Asa built up Judah's defenses. The first part of Asa's reign, in fact, a good deal of his reign was marked by peace. We're told that in uh, verse 1, and then it's repeated like four times. There was a time of rest, a time of uh, tranquility. Asa himself came to the throne at a very young age, and he was spared the responsibilities or the hazards of warfare in those years. Now, there might be uh, indeed historical um, explanations for that measure of peace. Jeroboam indeed had been defeated. and was probably suffering from that defeat and unable to wage war. And there were other ongoing conflicts that might have secured a respite for Judah. But we're told that it was a gift of God. The Lord had given him rest. But we're also told that Asa appears to have made good use of it. He didn't use this period of, of rest simply to enjoy the, the luxuries and uh, possibly the ease of his position as, as king, but rather he went to work. He treated this period as an opportunity uh, to build. He built fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest. He said to Judah, let us build these cities and make walls around them and towers and gates and bars while the land is yet before us. You know that this is actually another feature of godly leadership when you look at other kings of Judah and Jerusalem, like Hezekiah, or even Manasseh, after he came to repentance. He showed that repentance by fortifying Jerusalem. You see that same pattern. Purify worship, then protect Jerusalem. Purify the church, and then be concerned for her future by protecting it. See, Christ also leads his church with that same task. It's his spirit that moved Asa to care for the defense of Jerusalem. And it's the spirit of Christ that still moves faithful Christians to be on guard, uh, to be ready to face uh, spiritual opposition and spiritual enemies. And this is a right reminder, isn't it, that times of peace in our society or in the church uh, should not make us careless or lazy. Sometimes the church is called to fight. You might say sometimes it must be in fighting mode. Jude makes that clear in his epistle. Where he says, I was going to write to you concerning the common faith, but I considered it necessary to exhort you to earnestly contend for the faith. For certain men have crept in among you unawares, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness, denying the Lord that bought them. In other words, you need to, you need to fight. These heretics need to maintain sound doctrine, contend for the faith. There, there may be fighting times in the church. There may be suffering times in the church. Jesus, in his letter to Smyrna, says, Do not fear those things that are about to happen to you. The devil is going to throw some of you into prison. and You're going to be tested ten days. Be faithful unto death. There are suffering times in the church of Jesus Christ. There are also times of peace. In Acts chapter 9, 
We read, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. In this time of peace, they were built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Times of tranquility and and peace are times of opportunity. Opportunity to be built up. Times uh, to grow. Time to become stronger in our knowledge and in our faith and in our service while it's possible. Because we must not assume that uh, such days of relative tranquility and opportunity and peace will continue. And you can be sure that should the freedom that we have now to gather publicly for worship were that to be taken away, no one's going to say, you know, I really regret going through all that effort to come to church twice on Sunday. It's possible that some might regret neglecting the opportunity when they no longer have it. Or who's going to say, you know, I really regret spending all that time in the Word of God now that I'm my Bible has been taken away from me or now that I'm in a prison cell. No, it may be that people might say, you know, I really wish I knew, knew, knew more Scripture. I wish I had memorized it better because now I don't have a Bible. No, we would be thankful to have used this time of of tranquility and peace to be strengthened in our faith, to be built up, to store up the knowledge of God's Word. Asa built up Judah's defenses as he had the opportunity. And then finally, Asa relied on the Lord's help. A crisis indeed did come to Judah. We read of it in verse 9, where Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots. Then we read in verse 11, Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you, and in your name we go against this multitude. It's a verse that's been variously rendered. Some translations say, There is none like you, O Lord, to help between the mighty and the weak. However it's uh, translated here, the, the point is obvious. Asa considered himself and Judah to be among the weak. And with all his preparation, he didn't trust in uh, his defenses. They knew themselves to be outnumbered. They knew themselves to be powerless in themselves, helpless. If God is not their help. It's one of the great prayers of Scripture, isn't it? And uh, you might say, well, it really shows a valiant kind of faith and an entire dependence upon God. And very interestingly, although he had spent all that time fortifying these cities, he doesn't hunker down with his troops behind walls. They actually take the fight to the enemy. They go out and meet him in the south in this valley that's identified. Maybe it was an advantage to fight in that kind of terrain. Maybe chariots weren't so effective in the valley. In any case, he confessed no confidence in himself. He acknowledged his weakness and his helplessness without the Lord. He knew that the enemy, from a material and physical viewpoint, was far superior, well-equipped, right? They had chariots. And maybe some of you recall that the kings of of uh, of Jerusalem were not to multiply horses. In other words, they were not supposed to rely upon the kinds of uh, uh, superior defenses or offensive equipment that the nation surrounded them would rely upon. It's like the church, right? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual, casting down imaginations 
And that stipulation that God imposed upon the kings and upon his people was to stand as a testimony that, yes, they were to um, build defenses, but but with limits, because ultimately they must know, they must believe that God is their defense. And we hear that. We hear that kind of a faith expressed in the Psalms, don't we? Where uh, we read in, uh, in, in Psalm chapter, in Psalm 20, it says, Some trust in horses and some in chariots, but we will trust in the Lord our God. I'm paraphrasing here. I thought I had it in the clip. Yes. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Facing their helplessness and weakness, Asa led the people in trusting, relying entirely upon God. What do you do when you face a crisis? What do you do when you face circumstances beyond your power? What do you do when you feel your helplessness? Do you resist it with self-talk? Like the worldly philosophy that uh, teaches you to say, oh, I can do anything. I'm strong. Or do you acknowledge it with humility before God and seek his help? Whatever it might be. Whatever you young people might be facing. Perhaps you're facing fears that you don't share with your parents or anyone else. Perhaps you struggle with sins that overcome you and sometimes you feel desperate and hopeless. Perhaps you feel uh, questions about your future. You worry about what's going to happen. And in your own private, secret thoughts, these things trouble you greatly. Well, that's the crisis of your life now. Those are the circumstances in which God is saying, yes, yes, you're weak, you're helpless, you need me. And so as the Bible says, you're to... Trust in the Lord with all your heart, not lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll direct your steps. Asa saw that the battle really was between God and his enemies. We hear that, don't we, in uh, in, in verse uh, 11, where he said, O oh Lord, you are God. Do not let man prevail against you. He didn't say, let man prevail against us. He knew that the battle was the Lord's. He had that faith that David showed when he confronted Goliath. And that's exactly how the outcome is described in verses 12 and 13. The Lord struck the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. They were overthrown. They could not recover, for they were broken before the Lord and his army. And that's true of the aftermath. They defeated all the cities around Gera, for the fear of the Lord had come upon them. And that word fear here really refers to the terror of the Lord. These, these people were paralyzed with fear. And they took much spoil. Asa, Asa was a good and a godly king. And Asa, in this respect, also was a type of Christ. But at this point in this chapter, there's a sense in which we need to see that Asa rather fades from view and only our Lord and Savior himself appears to faith. Because, yes, uh, Asa was a godly king. He was a zealous leader. Uh, he was an example of faithfulness, but he is not the Savior. He was a great leader. And we might say, well, yes, the Lord Jesus Christ, in many respects, is a leader. But he doesn't save us, first of all, by leading us. He saves us by entering where no one else could ever go. His own arm brought salvation. He entered the darkness 
of Golgotha. He took upon himself willingly that task, that commission as the anointed of God, not only as a king, but as a priest. And as a priest, he came to offer himself for our salvation. That's how our Lord Jesus Christ is described in in Hebrews chapter 10. When he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. By that will, we have been sanctified. And you can hear in that word sanctified, not simply the progressive process of growing more like Jesus, but hear that word sanctified to mean saved, effectively set apart by the salvation work of Jesus. By that will, we have been sanctified. How? Through the offering of the body, that body that God prepared for him, which he assumed, the eternal son of God, by the body of Jesus Christ, which was offered once for all. Yes, Christ had a loyal heart indeed to a task that was all his own. And that's the bottom line foundation for our trust in the Lord and our comfort this morning. Whatever circumstances we might face, whatever dangers or hazards, it's the grace of God, his faithfulness. You know, Asa would kind of forget that as we'll see, but let's never forget it. And let's draw comfort from it and confidence in any kind of crisis. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Amen.